all I'm doing. I'm doing what somebody already did for me. I'm not doing anything new. I don't even say special. I'm just doing it the same way I got it. This is Ferguson Voices, Disrupting the Frame, a moral courage project presented by Proof, Media for Social Justice, and the University of Dayton Human Rights Center. I'm Jada Woods. Act three, doing it. The long sweep of history is flecked with millions of moments and micro decisions, but these are really the parts we remember. We focus on the broad strokes, the generalities, the headlines, the takeaways. But as we step in closer to the canvas, we spot the gray areas we couldn't see before. And the Ferguson moment is smeared in gray. Although many residents had to decide whether or not to protest, that was only one decision in the long winding series of choices that people made before, during, and after the summer of 2014. Layered into these moments are interactions and stories that texture the time after the shooting of Mike Brown, exposing the humanness that shaped these historic weeks, months, and years. The Ferguson moment called on ordinary people to take action by utilizing whatever tools were within their reach to make a difference. Sometimes that meant something seemingly as small as tweeting to love one another or hosting a dinner. Sometimes that meant sacrificing one's own safety, own body for a cause they held dear. For some, the decision felt preordained. It was one they were called to make. For others, they simply had enough. Whatever their motivations, what separates these people from the others are their deeds. There's nothing inherently extraordinary about them, aside from how they acted during the moments of crisis. Ferguson produced a set of unlikely champions, folks who would never see themselves in this light and people whose experiences did not make the broad brush stroke. These stories prove anyone can use whatever means are at their disposal to make an impact. By the time I was 25 years old, I lost my hearing in my left ear. I've been singing since the age of 12. By the time I was 19, I was competing in Las Vegas on a national level, singing. I attended Missouri Baptist College at the time. It's now university. I was the first black to receive a, a music scholarship, a full music scholarship. I was the first black class president. And two weeks before I graduated, I didn't even know if I was going to go to college because no scholarship had even been offered to me. But because my mother was in the hospital and was listening to a tape of me singing, a gentleman was also in the hospital with her and heard that tape and said, who is that? That's my daughter. Well, where is she? She's in high school. Well, where is she going to college? My mother says, I don't know. We can't afford it. He says, oh, no, 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 no. You tell your daughter to call the dean of students right now. I'm going to get her an audition over at the college. And so that's how doors open. Just like my high school music teacher told me. So we have to reach back and reach up in order to connect to our communities, to our youth, and help. For Marty Casey, she didn't consider her actions extraordinary. Marty knew the unrest this summer of 2014 would forever alter the status quo. Marty is an entertainer. Her sprawling career has included gigs with touring theater companies and work on television and in film, in front of the camera and behind it. Although her role as a mother drove her to join the movement on the streets, she also channeled her role as an artist to found Show Me Arts Academy, which teaches more than 1,200 children about arts in the city for free. 
Marty is a doer, and her most powerful action was the hardest, walking away. I was in a dark room with a, with a lot of other people, and we were whispering. And I'm like, well, why are we whispering? They say, well, the cops are trying to figure out what we're talking about and what we're doing, and, um, you know, so we just need to keep our voices down. I was like, oh, well, I mean, like, are we mad at the cops? Or what? <laughs> Or we just mad at that one cop. We mad at all the cops. You know, I just couldn't figure it out. You know, because this isn't, I'm just being honest, this isn't who I am. That's not what I'm made of. And so, but I, I you know, stuck and stayed and just kind of to, to see it play out. And next thing I know, they're basically teaching us how to um, protect ourselves if necessary. And I'm like, hmm, this isn't good. And then they passed around a, a few um, black Sharpies. So as they were doing that, they said, when you get the Sharpie, write this number down. And they told us the number. And I wrote it on my for- forearm because that's where they told us to write it, where, you know, it just couldn't be seen by the average person. And 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 I'm like, well, why they have us writing it here? So after everybody had the number written down, they was like, check the number real good. Is this the number that you all have? I looked at my arm. I had it all written down right and correctly says now call us when you get locked up because we're going to come get you out. <laughs> I said, oh, and um. So now we're in our cars and we're about to drive to the location where we're going to be to to start our march. They went to the left. I went to the right. I went home. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not I guess I'm just not cut out for this. And and no judgment to anyone or whatever the process is, whatever any individual had to do to get through what we had to get through. But I knew that. I was being taken down a road that I didn't see any end result of it making the positive change that I was hoping and praying for. So I had to do it for myself. And I was not a happy camper. I cried, and I still watched television every every minute of the day, and I was just like, I just need a word. And it came one day that... You need to start the academy you've been talking about and thinking about for over these years. And I never did because of lack of funding. And I'm just going to be honest, and I hope that whoever sees this or hears this one day really keep this in mind. If all of the footage that they're taking from me right now, if you don't remember anything that Marty Casey says to you, I hope you hear this. Do not wait to have funding or support to do what you have been called to do. Your gifts will make room for you, and I'm a living witness. For Marty, she did what she knew best. She didn't tell the world what changed her. She showed the world. I may not know all of the laws and what's written, but I know what I feel. I know what's in my heart, and I can show you better than I can tell you. Let me show let me show you what I would like to see written. Let me show you by when I pull together Show Me Arts Academy, I'm not going to just pull all my cousins from my hood and we're going to be the instructors. I'm pulling people together that I've worked with all over this world, country if I can, and, and diversity because that's the world we live in. 
I need, I need, when I say my babies, I'm talking about my culture, my children, my, 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 my birth, my blood to know that I want you to be able to go further in life by having these opportunities of working with everyone. Others in Ferguson also opted to hold their ground, but that typography shifted based on the journeys people had already traveled, what they struggled through, and how they scaled mountains. Scott Bonner held his ground at Ferguson Municipal Public Library, where he had been serving as director just a month before Mike Brown was killed. When the first night of the unrest hit the library, the Ferguson Florissant School District canceled classes, and hundreds of students had nowhere to go, some with parents who couldn't risk a layoff for staying home with them. Scott worked with teachers to organize classes in the library, which they called School for Peace. Fall of 2014 is another area that is where my memories are spotty uh, because I was overwhelmed and overworking and sleeping hardly at all throughout the you know four months there. I am ashamed of not opening that the first day. I am proud that we did not half-ass it after that. We didn't turtle up, we didn't play it safe. We went boom as big as we could and did everything we could think of. Um, And I think looking back, I don't know if it was the right thing to do, but I think it was the best thing that we could have done. And maybe it was too much, and maybe it was foolish, and maybe we'd make a lot of big dumb mistakes, but at least we did everything we could. It was all running forward, never looking back, right? And we didn't stop. Other than trying to see what can we do next, what can we do next, what can we do next, you know, and listening to people, when they told me what the needs were, I didn't do any meta, right? I didn't look at what we were doing and try to see uh, were we important or were we not important. Honestly, I didn't get a sense that we what we did was important to the community until uh, probably after the grand jury announcement, whenever suddenly everyone's like, you know, here are all these donations and here are all these awards and, and oh, you did such wonderful work. And I'm like, okay, we just did what libraries do. You know that, right? What seared his memory, however, was not the first wave of unrest in late summer, but that November night after the grand jury non-indictment of the officer in question, Darren Wilson. It was a night almost everyone in Ferguson had been nervously awaiting because they feared what would happen if Wilson were to walk free. Destruction from the protesters, violence from the police, a community broken by more devastating news. I'm sitting there and I'm watching this and I see the big crowd go and I don't know at this point that they're going to burn down. That night it was like a dozen businesses, right? And flip a few cars and all kinds of stuff. That all kinds of ugly happened and all the glasses broken. But I'm sitting there with my potato chips and my soda pop uh, just waiting out the night. And at some point I hear this boom, 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 like echoing throughout the library. I'm like, what the hell is that? And I look up at the security monitor and I see that there's like a... I don't know, eight or ten people outside the library's front door trying to kick it in. They were trying to kick in the glass door. And so I'm like, what? And I grab my little fire extinguisher and I come running around the corner going, no, no, not here, not here. And the, the crowd kicked the door a half dozen more times and then they left. So I thought, okay, it's over. And I went back over to my chips and soda and my computer monitor watching the news. And some point later, I don't know how long, it happens again. It's a boom, boom, boom. But this time... One of them, as they're leaving, has this heavy glass bottle, one of those bottles with a really thick bottom, and he wings it at the door. This guy was awesome, a phenomenal, he should be on the Cardinals, because he threw it with incredible power and incredible accuracy, (laughs) obliterated that bottle. And he obliterated it right on the handles 
of the old door. Not the glass three inches this way, not the glass three inches that way, but right on the handles of the door. So it didn't go through, and if it had gone through, who the hell knows what would happen that night. But at that point, whenever I saw the glass bottle breaking, I realized how close, it, how easily that could have been them in the building doing whatever people do when they're in an excited state, in a mob state. At that point, I realized that I was a goddamn fool, that I was an idiot for being there. For years, I've been telling people during emergency training, you know, people are more important than things. Don't worry about the books. Just save the people. Just get yourself out of there and get yourself safe. And that, that night, at that moment, in that millisecond, I realized that I'm a people too. This time, though, Scott knew what he needed to do. When the news came out that Wilson would not serve time for pulling the trigger, Scott and the School for Peace were ready to start up again. And this time, as a leading voice of the library, he had one thing to say. Around like 4.15, I sent out a tweet that said, other organizations are closed, uh, but we're going to stay open um, until 8 p.m. as long as it is safe for staff and patrons love each other. That love each other, I don't know, maybe it sounds like a piddly little thing to you, but it was a big deal at the time. Although Scott didn't live within Ferguson city limits, for long before that summer hit, he grew up in rural Missouri, which, like some of those sleepless nights that summer, he barely remembers and never forgets. <laughs> I grew up... I grew up... No, jeez. It's going to be depressing. I grew up in dirt poor in rural Missouri with no other kids anywhere around me on the edge of a... Um, on the edge of my grandpa's farm with parents that were fairly neglectful. So I did a lot of playing with sticks and rocks and looking at cows. Living on the fringes opened his eyes to struggles that might never have crossed into his view. Struggles he still sees when making decisions every day. Poverty teaches you lessons, deep and meaningful lessons on subjects that wealthy people don't even know exist. And you learn a lot just from growing up poor. And I think that, that informs me as a person every day. Before Scott worked in libraries, he worked in mental health for nine years. After working with children in juvenile correctional facilities, the pain of others began to overcrowd the space for his own. So he turned to what had always been there for him, books. However, during those nine years, he learned a lesson that guided his actions in 2014 through today. The truth is not black and white. It's really hard to describe. Um, I could tell a bunch of crazy horror stories that give you a totally false impression, but a really f interesting, like it would make a great movie kind of thing, but it's not really the truth about what was there. There were things that happened. They were really bad. That's not the truth of what was there. What was there was much more complex. Others also didn't see the events in Ferguson in black and white, but still did what they thought was right. And so it's weird to stand in the middle because nobody knows. One of the really interesting things probably about politics in general in the, in the U.S. right now is that we want dichotomies. We want you to be on one side or the other, uh, and it's the same way through this. We, you're either pro-police and you want nothing to change, or you're with the protesters and you want everything to change. And if you're in the middle trying to call everybody to love, they, they don't know where to put you. I had been with the police. I had been with the protesters. I knew that uh, that the root of this was relationship-based, and, and I knew that um, in order to, to overcome that, we would have just to have time together. Pastor Daryl Meese hit the streets not to protest, but to mediate, to support, turning to something higher than himself to show him the way. He turned to God and started Woven Community Church and a weekly interfaith potluck for dialogue and fellowship, 
called Ferguson Ford. Uh, the table is always set up so there's not a head. And we don't, you, you notice it's square. Uh, we don't have separate tables because we don't have separate families. We have one table. Rather, we have 20 people or 50 people. We have one table because we have one family. What, what I think is important is that in that space every week, we try to bring the future we want into today. To sit with another person's reality is going to change you uh, if you make space with it. And to sit with literally hundreds of people's realities around a table and to make space for people to talk, it changes you. Gerald didn't always have faith as a guide, but one passage written in the scripture taught him a lesson he's carried with him. For years before I was ever a Christian, the uh, uh, passage from Ecclesiastes 4, uh, 9 to 12, but it ends with a cord of three strands that's not easily broken, uh, has been one of my favorite sayings. And that's actually the, the statement which Woven gets its name from. Woven Community Church is about how uh, we, when, when our diversity comes together and with the Christ life and we weave our lives together around His, we are stronger that the, the weak become strong and the strong become weak, but it's stronger as a whole. Hmm. And so reflecting on the fact that that's been something, that passage has been something I've enjoyed for at least a decade before I was ever a Christian. Uh, it was fascinating to think about, like, okay, I get it. I would not have done the things I did or acted in the way I had without Christ leading me, not because I am somehow morally better than the next person I'm not, not because uh, I have answers to this or I'm stronger or more courageous. Uh, I don't think any of those things are true, but because uh, he is said to be here. I'm just trying to go where I'm told to go. That's it. Daryl's wide-angle view of the world, of Ferguson, as a whole of human connections, took him on a path that some couldn't walk. Some of the others viewing the world in Ferguson from this vantage point had lived too close to the heart of Mike Brown. I, I would take the bus, but the buses don't run consistently, so sometimes it was easier just to walk. And police would be all of a sudden hovering in the road. And at first I saw kids getting stopped, and in my mind I was like, okay, they, they must have been doing something. I knew some of them. Some of them, you know, they, they were into some dirt. But then, like, I'd be with groups, and we're just walking, talking, and next thing you know, a cop rolls up, and okay, everybody stopped, and many of them, like I remember the first time it happened, some of them already knew what to do. They just went and put their hands on the cars, and I kind of just followed suit. And next thing I know, they were looking through our bags, searching us, not asking for consent. In some cases, had a spread eagle. Um, after a while, it was something you just got used to. And then as you got older and you began to drive, you like knew which routes to take because you knew where there was going to be a high police presence, it became just kind of normal. Montega Simmons grew up in North County and attended Normandy, where Mike Brown went to high school. In 2014, Montega was chairman and executive director of the Organization of Black Struggle, or OBS, a local group active on racial justice issues in St. Louis since its founding in 1980. Despite its long history of activism, OBS had never confronted something like the Ferguson moment, and its organizers had never been tested so seriously before. We were nervous because we didn't know how they were going to respond, and we hadn't seen like the big police response yet. But there was also a sense in the air like, okay, if we don't play this the right way, we don't know how this thing could go. 
at a certain point they started shooting tear gas and advancing and it took everything for us to get our people just together and then figure out how we were going to navigate our way out because most of the people who had actually parked there weren't able to move their car yeah it felt like we were actually under siege i don't think there was nothing that could have prepared me for what was happening with a background organizing labor unions and fast food workers Montega became a point person early on in the uprising. He collaborated among activist groups and factions and marshaled resources to transform the initial outrage into a sustained movement. As early as August 9th and 10th, Montega saw the potential in what was mounting, recognizing it as a moment. Transforming the moment into a movement became his charge. It was at that point we started thinking about, like, okay, what's the next series of actions? How do we get people to the table? Uh, we put out a call for a big meeting on, I think, the next Friday. Because um, I think it was really important with all these actors at the, at the table to, to get us at least on some level of accord. Um, like, nobody expected everybody to say the same thing, but we need some kind of alignment, and that was just clear. So Montega and OBS became a hub, bringing people together for long meetings about strategy. This meant gathering a diverse set of groups to focus on their commonalities. He helped place building blocks, locally and nationally, to capitalize on the momentum and to assert some degree of control over the massive groundswell. This stuff, it's, it's endemic and it's happening all around the country. So when it hit here, the question was like, how do we stop them from killing it? How do we stop them from controlling the narrative? How do we stop them from putting a cap on this? and really get our community on the same accord to say this stops now. Um, and that's what we were really trying to figure out, like how do we, one, maintain it? Because there was a lot of like new faces that hadn't shown up. Um, it's curious because like in that space, one, you saw artists, like the hip hop community, a lot of those folks, they were there. A lot of the folks we'd actually engaged with around 5 for 15, the fast food workers, they showed up people that I've been just loosely organizing with and talking to, they were front lines and they weren't the only ones, but they were ready to get organized and do something different. Like, how do we support it? How do we maintain it? What are we building? Yeah. And that became the mission going forward. It's like, how do we sustain this? How do we support what's happening on the ground? How do we articulate like what's happening? And to be real, like we were over our heads. We didn't know what to do. Montega and his comrades were tested in ways that no one was wholly prepared for. But they, like the others, felt the weight of the moment and acted under and despite its pressure. Although these voices are powerful and their contributions meaningful, in many ways, they're not remarkable. These residents of Ferguson are librarians, pastors, artists, mothers, students. They are like us. But those who acted set themselves apart by virtue of what they did, by overcoming fears or challenges to do the right thing. And it came, as courage does, with a cost. Ferguson Voices Disrupting the Frame is a podcast, multimedia exhibit, and storytelling website. Visit fergusonvoices.com for the integrated experience, which includes photography and additional interview excerpts.
Thank you to the people of Ferguson, Missouri who participated in this project and trusted us with their stories. The Ferguson Voices podcast is a collaboration produced by Joel Proust and the Moral Courage Project team, written by Amanda D. and Joel Proust, narrated by Jada Woods, and mixed by Brett Sanderson, with original music from Lush Life. For more Lush Life, check out his recent mixtape, Idols and Enemies, and visit Lush Life online at theyoungandinlove.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so each new episode of Ferguson Voices lands in your feed once it's released. Ferguson Voices is available on iTunes, Google Play, and other platforms. If you like what you hear, hit us up with a solid rating and share these stories with friends. 